I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. which means we're going to be talking about germ theory. Spoilers? <laughs> Spoilers from, for a book that's been out for over 125 years. Uh, movies that have been out for more than 70 years. You've had your chance to find out about War of the Worlds. But we're also going to be talking about rock, about 70s prog rock. And these concept albums that were out there in the 70s. And we're also going to be talking about some people who, I guess some of them could still potentially do podcast, but the four greatest voices that could ever be featured on a podcast. And sadly, I'll, I'll admit it, I, I ain't one of them, all right? Let's get into this. Oh, there's so much to do in this. I cannot wait. <laughs> Depending on your age, you may or may not be aware that in 1978, there was a double album that came out called Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. This was a little odd, because if you knew anything about War of the Worlds, you knew that the guy what wrote it was a gentleman who wasn't called Jeff Wayne. Oh no, his name was Herbert George Wells, who is known to all of history as H.G. Wells, and I will call him that from now on, because let's face it, Herbert is not a cool first name, but H.G. Wells is genuinely a genius. So, who's Jeff Wayne? And the thing, like, I thought is I was aware that there was voiceover work from a very famous person who we'll come on to in a moment, but... I therefore assumed that everything else was Jeff Wayne, and it really wasn't. So, to explain, Jeff Wayne was a producer. He had produced a number of David Essex albums, who was a very big person in the 1970s. He did movies, TV shows, albums. He had, I think, a total of more than a dozen top 40 albums at a time when album sales meant something. David Essex is a forgotten phenomenon out there. More on him later. So Jeff Wayne had done some work with some big names, but he wasn't one of these producers that had worked with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or something like that. He'd had 
some good success and and like a lot of music producers had actually made more money out of the music world per se but now into the world of commercials which you may not be remembered through the annals of history for but it's very good at paying the mortgage i'm more than happy to admit that commerciality has to be a consideration i hate it when people say oh they've sold out well maybe they wanted to sell more than three albums okay might want to consider that it is lovely i have people say oh jem you must love being a historian and a podcaster it's like i do but if you seriously think that history books and a podcast are what pay my mortgage, you are sadly mistaken. So yes, I love this stuff, but it clearly isn't the day job. Moving on. So, Jeff Wayne had this idea of he wanted, he was aware that there were these concept albums. The 70s, as I, I said in the intro, was a period where there's some real experimentation. Really, up until the 1970s, an album was a collection of all the latest songs from X. It could have been Elvis, it could have been the Beatles, but even the later Beatles albums started to have certain themes. Perhaps, arguably, the first concept album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, where the idea was that there was almost a story behind each one of the songs, and the songs linked together in terms of tone, more than just it's the same band and same voices, but almost like these are the style as if this band had been called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a real band and we're pretending to be them. So there was a concept behind it rather than just a collection of songs, hence concept album, but this was pushed into much grander territory in the 1970s. I'm looking at you, The Who, with Tommy. Then, of course, perhaps the greatest concept album of all is Dark Side of the Moon, or indeed The Wall by Pink Floyd. They were kind of masters of this stuff. And Led Zeppelin as well, maybe not full-on concept, but they just started calling their albums. And it is worth remembering, Led Zeppelin never released a single. They were purely an album act. And it was Led Zeppelin 1, Led Zeppelin 2, Led Zeppelin 3... Led Zeppelin 4. These are not original names for albums, but there were certain styles to them. There's one that didn't even have a name, so it ended up being called Symbols or Houses of the Holy. You take your pick on that one. So, all of this stuff, this creativity, was coming out in the 1970s, and Jeff Wayne loved the idea of having almost a narrative to a musical album, but he wanted to get a genuine narrative and create original music for it. And several ideas have been whizzing through his head. But then a member of the family said, you need to read H.G. Wells' War of the World. And he did, and I think he did it on holiday, and he fell in love with it and thought, okay, this is it. This is the anchor. This is the hook. And now I need to pull together a gang to get all of this to work together. And what I want to say is... Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, the album, is a seminal piece of work. It is monumental. It works. And I encourage you to listen to it. You can listen to it for free on YouTube. I'm sure you can listen to it on Spotify or whatever. So you can just listen to it. But please don't put it on shuffle or anything like that. Listen to it all the way through. And it's a concert. It's a musical or an opera, but it's to do with modern music, with electric guitars and things like that and choruses etc but there is a spoken word book weaving its way through it and now 
pulling the gang together. And it is worth pointing out that at no point did you have all of the artists involved with this album in the same room at the same time. Jeff Wayne racked up a fortune in expenses and basically paid a lot of people a lot of money, hoping this would be a hit. He bet the house literally on this project, which was completely untested. But he had a dream, he had a vision, and by golly, he was going to pull it all together. And I'm really glad he did, because it worked. But what's interesting is, if we look at some of the people involved musically on it, we got someone like Justin Hayward, who was in the Moody Blues. We got Phil Linnett, who's the lead guitarist and lead singer for Thin Lizzy. And David Essex is in there as well. And you might be struggling to know some of those names. You might have vaguely heard of Thin Lizzy and Boys Are Back In Town's a great tune. But here's the thing, if we're talking about the late 1970s, the Moody Blues, Thin Lizzy and David Essex were successful. I want to be clear about this. They made more money and much better music than I ever will. All right? But, as I've already mentioned, there was The Who. There was Pink Floyd. David Bowie would have been an obvious person to do. You know, if we're talking about, if you don't know, War of the Worlds, The Invaders Come From Mars, 1970s, you couldn't shut up David Bowie about Mars. Is there life on Mars? See what I mean? So, you know, he didn't pick the biggest names. He didn't pick the obvious people to go to. And I suspect because if Pink Floyd had been phoned up by Jeff Wayne and can you put your musical backing into my project, the answer probably would have been no, we're much bigger than you. So he had to go second tier, really, or perhaps a bit more mainstream rather than the towering artistry of the late 1970s. There is, however, an exception to this. He needed a great voice to read out the actual story of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Now, to be clear, Jeff Wayne actually moved things around a little bit, as typical with a lot of late Victorian writing, H.G. Wells wasn't big on diversity. And I'm not talking about sort of sexual orientation, because even in the 1970s, that was probably not going to be the way to sell an album. But just have some female characters in it. The main character is constantly trying to find his brother in the book. Let's just change that to the wife. Doesn't really change the story much. But finally, we've got some female voices in the story as well. Good for you, Jeff Wayne. And completely understandable why H.G. Wells wrote it that way, because it's just the way he wrote books back in the, the late 1800s. More on H.G. Wells in a little bit. But let's get to the good stuff. So who are you going to get to read this out? Now, this is 1978. But what I find interesting is all four of these people were alive and doing business. They were very different ages and come from very different backgrounds in the 1970s. But I'm going to say that if you want an audio book read out, or a podcast read out, the four greatest voices you're ever going to have are Sir Lawrence Olivier. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. Shora Agdashlu. I would consider the enemy of my enemy a friend. 
Morgan Freeman. Sometimes it makes me sad, though. And to being gone. I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And Richard Burton. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing any. Now, the very distinctive Shore Agdashlu, you you might be sitting there going, oh, I can I, I can place that somewhere. So she does voice work in the most recent Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed Mirage, which is set in Islamic Baghdad during the height of the Islamic Golden Age, and seeing she is a woman from modern day Iran, perfect. You you in essence have a Muslim woman voicing it. It doesn't help that she has a voice that's just like black velvet. But also she's in The Expanse as well. And she actually does a lot of voice work. Once you know that voice, it pops up in a lot of animated movies and shows as well. So, yeah, she does live action stuff like The Expanse, but she does other things as well. Do I really need to explain to you Sir Lawrence Olivier and Morgan Freeman? But with Richard Burton, he was the one who was ultimately picked. And by 1978... The sheen had very much gone off Richard Burton. He was known more by the late 70s for his tempestuous relationship with Elizabeth Taylor than necessarily backing good movies, movies that were big hits. Probably his last big hit was a decade earlier with Where Eagles Dare. Now, he was magnificent in that movie, but apparently Clint Eastwood, who was just on the rise in the late 60s. He was still, if that came out in 68, don't forget, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly came out in 1969, so he was on his way. And Clint Eastwood was very diligent in that movie and got very annoyed at how everybody had to pause as Richard Burton turned up and forgotten his line, or turned up drunk, or turned up hungover. Richard Burton was a liability by the late 1960s, and it was really showing by the 1970s. However, in the case of Jeff Wayne, he spent a fortune getting the work of Richard Burton, and quite right too. I love one of the quotes on the YouTube version of this album, which simply one person just says, Richard Burton's voice is gravy for the soul. I think that's a pretty good description, to be honest. But Burton did it in just a matter of days. He was walked into a booth, he was given the script, he read it out, and of course once it's recorded it could be stretched out over the entire album. And there are huge gaps between some of the things he says, but that opening bit about the minds immeasurably more complex than ours. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. You know, it just sends a shiver down your spine. Add to that the music, and you just have lightning in a bottle. Now, what's interesting, and I do want to point this out, is because of that very famous opening bit, The Eve of War is the name of that piece of music. That everybody knows. But actually, in the 1990s, there was a double single that was released, which had a remix of Eve of War, which in essence, had the best bits of Richard Burton's stuff with the best bits of the Eve of the War tune turned into a single. But on the flip side of that, you've got Forever Autumn. 
The summer sun is fading as the year grows old And darker days are drawing near Which you can tell is quite a different song. But then let's not forget, and I'll give you one other example of a very different song in the album, which is where David Essex becomes the most David Essexy you could possibly get, which is called Brave New World. But maybe from the madness, something beautiful will grow in a brave new world. Now, Brave New World was a phrase that had been used in a number of seminal science fiction pieces, which nowadays is seen in a very sinister way. And I think there can be no doubt that this was being used in that regards in the 1970s. David Essex is talking about this idea of this underground world, but at the same time, it's a fundamentally flawed idea. But more on that and sewage... In a, in a bit. <laughs> Bear with me on this. Oh, there's so many different directions we can go to with this. It's such a great piece of music. I remember going back to my Warhammer days in the 1980s, a friend of mine had this on double cassette and we would have it playing in the background while we were fighting our space marines versus the Eldar or the Orcs or whatever. And it really fitted very, very well. So, yes, that was the album that's what was going on when it came out it came out to mixed reviews because not all people are going to get it it was quite an unusual if you're going to link it to something you're going to link it to some of these rock opera concept type albums and not everybody liked those and also it was new and it was a bit rocky and you got somebody like the guy from Thin Lizzy and David Essex there, which again aren't the absolute gold standard of music in the 1970s, or particularly the late 70s. So there was some sniffiness, but it sold. And then it continued to sell, and then it sold some more. And Jeff Wayne has periodically refreshed it. There's, there was a DVD of it where there was an animated story linked to it, then there was Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds live experience. And what got me thinking about this is earlier this year, I went to the Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds immersive experience in London. And that was sensational. It was so sensational, I went with a friend a second time just a few months later. Now, if you do want to go to this, if, you, if you're a fan of Jeff Wayne, if you happen to be in London, whatever i appreciate if you're hearing this in new york you might not want to come over to london just to go to this thing but if you do ever do it by all means have a burger there if you want to they're all right but if you go just down the road you will see two amazing pieces of architecture first of all there's the lloyd's building which is one of those buildings where all the inside of the building is on the outside all the tubes and pipes and things like that it's an architectural triumph or something that's won loads of architectural awards i was there standing there with my friend who is an architect and he just looked at it he hates it and he just looked at it and he goes they must spend so much money keeping that thing shiny rather than rusty he's probably not wrong but then if you don't want to know the surprise i would suggest you fast forward a minute and then you'll you'll get past it, but I'm going to describe a restaurant with 
an amazing surprise in the basement, okay? So here we go. If you go just down the road, just past the Lloyd's building, depending on which direction you're going, there is a bar slash restaurant called Revolution. And if you go in there, I recommend you go to the loo. Because when you go to the bathrooms downstairs, you suddenly realise why it's such a fancy building. It's an ex-bank. And for the purposes of entertainment for you as a diner there, there is the vault. And the vault is open and you can go into it. And you've seen the layout of those sorts of vaults with all the little letterbox-sized metal sheets with numbers on them, the security deposit box thing, all of that's in there. I don't want to say too much about it, but the, obviously there's the massive door with the big wheel on it. You're suddenly into... Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A movie scene at that point. And actually, if you go into the back of it, there's even a bar there which you can rent out for like birthdays and things like that. It is amazing. So I took my architect friend into that i said to him when well not only are we going to see this thing that you really like because we both like going to some live event interactive type stuff but also i said i'm going to surprise you with some architecture and he actually said to me afterwards he goes i was really worried about that because you were very excited and i was worried i might not be excited he goes but it was amazing thank you so much for sharing that with me jim so there you go that's a good day out you know you got a lunch something interesting there then maybe the morning or afternoon doing jeff wayne's war of the world into immersive experience big mouthfuls there it's about two hours in there so you get your money's worth i would say so all of that together enjoy but it got me thinking and i thought you know what i absolutely can do a podcast episode on that so yes we are going to do some actual history but this is one of these things where this is a piece of pop culture that's so important to history 
that it's actually defined history. It's become part of history, which is why I love doing this podcast so much. Thank you very much. Let's go to H.G. Wells. And to give you an idea, he was born in 1866 in Kent, and he died in 1946 in London. So he didn't go very far. If you don't know, Kent is just south of London. He's very much a southerner in England, and he survived after World War II. But he did a lot of his writing, his perhaps best known for the things he was writing in the 1890s on into the very early 20th century, so leading up to World War One, He did write after that. Some of the books you definitely, or some of the stories at least you definitely heard of is War of the Worlds, Time Machine, Invisible Man, and maybe you've heard of When the Sleeper Wakes, which was written in 1899 and describes concepts like paratroopers and aerial bombardment of cities and anti-aircraft guns. Bearing in mind the Wright brothers successfully took flight in 1903, that's some real science fiction over there, and sadly, he got that completely right when, obviously, you see what happens with the 20th century. He's seen as one of the fathers of science fiction. Now, to be clear, there were some pretty wild stories from the ancient world which involved going to the planets and stars and heavens, but it was more divinical, it was more fantastical rather than science fiction. And I think we absolutely have to do a shout-out for Jules Verne, who wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Journey to the Centre of the Earth. He also was... He was a generation before H.G. Wells, but he was also talking about these sorts of things. But there's no doubt that Wells, particularly with something like The Time Machine, which had various twists in it, and indeed, as I said, coming up, the twist for War of the Worlds, you've got some really intelligent sci-fi writing, which, as always... It might be in theory about the future. It might be about something impossible like alien invasion. But as always, it's actually telling you something about the world as it is today. Holding an imperfect mirror up to society. And that's exactly what Wells is doing with War of the Worlds. So, if you don't know the basic plot of War of the Worlds, and it has influenced so many things. So the basic plot is... We have London at the end of the 19th century, so the height of Victoriana, Britain's imperial might at its most powerful, and then there's a strange flash that's seen strange activity and gaseous clouds happening on the surface of Mars. Then suddenly there's a flash of a meteorite, and we get a strange metal object that lands out just outside of London. This is the weird thing. When you start talking about like Bromley and Kent and stuff like that, there are literally in places mentioned in War of the Worlds in and around London and the Southeast and the home counties. There's literally signs to it. It's like, this is where the aliens landed. And it's so weird because nowadays we're so used to the aliens attacking New York, we don't tend to think of... <laughs> Um, suburban London as a place for potential alien invasion. But of course, the reason why today we get your LA's and New York's being blown to pieces is because the most powerful country in the world is America. But if you go back to the 1890s, the most powerful country in the world is Britain. So why wouldn't they attack the capital city of Britain? It makes complete sense. So with that in mind, 
Wells is doing something that then just gets copied over and over and over again by pretty much every single alien invasion Hollywood movie ever. So it's all very Victorian, it's all very British. The aliens arrive, they dismantle their their pods and turn them into these tripod walking war machines that use a heat ray, which today we would use the term laser. So this is somebody describing a laser generations before lasers have actually been invented. Again, bravo Wells with your looking to the future there. And a really important moment is he's very clear it's all about sliding metal he doesn't use wheels in any of it this is one of the reasons why they are tripods they are walkers they are not rolling around on wheels or tracks but you do have a description of what we might later call a tank being described about 20 years before you get the invention of the tank well done wells the aliens come in with their walkers into London, start blowing it to pieces with their heat lasers, and then they head off into the waters, the shallow waters round England, and they meet Thunderchild. which is the biggest dreadnought battleship in the British Navy. And again, you have to look at the analogy here. In the 1890s, the most powerful military might on planet Earth was the Royal Navy. The term gunboat diplomacy you've heard of, and that's not a turn of phrase. There were multiple occasions when the British would turn up with a diplomat and a gunship sitting in port, and the implications were don't sign this, we're going to start firing. Not pretty, not nice, this is one of the reasons why empires get a bad name, bad rep, but what you've got in the book, and indeed in Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, is you get Thunderchild, the most potent weapon the British Empire has, being destroyed by the walkers, by the tripods. So in other words, it is showing you that if you're the bully, Invariably, there's always going to be somebody with a bigger stick to bully you with. Again, a very important thing. Then, later on, we get a meeting with a deranged priest, and he seems to think that they're devils. This is all something from God to punish us. Some people have seen this as Wells condemning the church, although Wells himself was Christian, so he might have been condemning when people start using religion to prove political points. But either way... He absolutely nailed that one as well as today. We get people talking about everything from AIDS to earthquakes to COVID as being some kind of divine retribution against a certain group. And indeed, in the 21st century, we have seen, sadly, so much sectarian violence being carried out in the name of religion. So again, very good analogy there, Wells, sadly, with that one. And... We then lead towards the end. Nothing is stopping these machines. Fortunately, we get the hero unifying with his brother slash girlfriend or wife, I should say. However, at one point, they meet a deranged soldier. Now, in the Jeff Wayne's musical and in the live experience, 
this is a soldier that gets you out of trouble, that that leads people away from from danger. But days later, he has become deranged with all the horrors and death that he's seen before him. And so he says we should just hide underground, which is where we get that David Essex song that I mentioned earlier, Brave New World, which is a lot of fun and is done so well in the immersive experience. I do thoroughly recommend you, you check that out. But it's hiding. It's, it's fading away. Part of this, round about the same time as you get the, the priest, is you start seeing how the aliens, the Martians, are manipulating the environment. The red weed is being spread. They are changing the atmosphere of planet Earth to suit their needs. Does this sound familiar to you in science fiction at all? Also, they start experimenting and starting using human bodies. That idea is integral to the idea of alien abduction and obsession and sightings and things like that, even to this day. So Wells's book is hugely influential as to how we describe and what we expect from aliens. And then, here comes the spoiler, just as everything seems absolutely doomed, the walkers stop walking. The war machines stop working or acting. And the question is, how? And it turns out, because they've been breathing our oxygen and using our water and feeding on our blood, they had become infected by our bacteria, of which they had no resistance to whatsoever. They were so advanced, there's just one line in the book which says they are so advanced they had cleaned their world of bacteria and they were a completely clean world. So in other words, they had no resistance to bacteria. And so the lowest, smallest, most basic creature on planet Earth defeats the highest technology that we've ever seen. What an incredibly clever twist. But Wells is actually pulling from a number of things that were going on in his time. So First of all, as I said, let's go back to David Essex, Brave New World, Living Underground, and Sewage. So London in the mid-1800s was a horrific cesspool where so many people were dying. Oh, the amount of people dying from dirty water. Cholera may not be a particularly unusual disease. It's not the sort of thing that you're going to get a movie about. It's going to be some sort of rare outbreak of something like Ebola. But cholera kills more people than any exotic diseases out there. Dirty water is how also you get mosquitoes. And malaria is the single biggest killer of human beings in all of history. Full stop. More than war, famine, everything. Malaria is the number one killer of human beings. So yes, it's really great news that we have finally, finally for the first time ever, got a vaccine for it. This is great news, but it's still in early stages of development, but it will save millions of lives, eventually billions. So because of that, London, which was growing and growing and growing in the Industrial Revolution, people were dying and dying and dying from cholera. So you get Mr. Bazalgette, and he, oh, please, I encourage you to do a Google search for him because he has the best mutton chops the best whiskers on the side of his face you will ever see. When you say Victorian gentleman, you have his face in your mind, even though you don't know it. And he was an engineer, and Bazalgette was a genius because he created hundreds of miles of sewers underneath London to get rid of the big stink, which is what the Thames was called at certain points 
in the 19th century. We needed to get all this human waste away from the human beings and vented out into sewage works where it could be properly treated and turned safe. And that's exactly what Bazalgette did. There are some amazing tours. You're going to think this is insane. Something else that you might want to do in London. There are tours of the Bazalgette pumping houses, which we're talking about Victorian innovation and industry. These are like cathedrals to machines and practicality rather than to gods. They are amazing pump rooms, and I so recommend you have a look at one of them. So that's one thing. But the genius of Bazalgette is not only did he save all these lives, but he didn't set the sewer maximum capacity to what Victorian London was like. He extrapolated the growth of the London population. And at the time of recording, in 2023, 150 years after the completion, they still have yet to reach capacity. They still work today as Bazalgette created in the Victorian era. Bravo. Again, he has saved thousands of lives through just simply clean water. Well done. So that, the fact that these were being built and Wells would have remembered this as he was writing, it's like, why can't we use the sewer system to all live underground? There's hundreds of miles of them. And he was right. And at that time, maybe you could have been a bit whiffy, but underground away from all the tripod war machines. So that's one thing. The other thing is the big twist at the end, which has been used multiple times. Now, to be clear, I'm going to say Jeff Wayne, even though it's a musical version, is the most accurate version, and he did change a few things, compared to the original source material, because there have been two specifically named versions of War of the Worlds movies. One is from the 1950s and is set in America in the 1950s. And the other one, directed by Steven Spielberg, no less, and starring Tom Cruise, was set in the early 2000s in America. So with both of these, they ignore the Victorian English setting and set it in, at that point, contemporary America. Now, what's interesting is it's mistaken that the tripods are turned into flying machines in the 1950s. That's simply because the minimum of special effects abilities at that time, because they do actually make reference to the fact that they are tripods, but they have invisible legs, and that's why they just have little hovery things. But the idea of the heat rays are present, all there and present, and indeed death by bacteria, all there and present in both those movies. The 1950s one was really a metaphor for the Cold War. The Tom Cruise Spielberg one was a metaphor for 9-11. So with that in mind, what was the metaphor for the original one? And the answer is quite shocking because what we had at the roughly the time of writing is we had a horrific act of genocide going on in Tasmania. Now, the thing I have to point out here is this was not government policy. When people talk about imperial excesses, they're there, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that everything that happened in the British Empire got sign-off. This wasn't an imperial policy. This was local white settlers being racist and horrible to the indigenous peoples. And what they did is they created what became known as the line and simply lined up across the entirety of Tasmania and marched across it, killing all of the indigenous peoples. So that's a genocide, pure and simple. That's why there are no indigenous people left on Tasmania. They were all killed by local white settlers. 
and that total callousness and the fact that they had vastly advanced technology with their breech-loading rifles is something that Wells wanted to get across here. It's like, as I said earlier, you may be a bully now, but there's always somebody out there with a bigger stick that can bully you. So once again, you've got an actual moral warning from science fiction and is one of the reasons why I absolutely love War of the Worlds. In almost any version of it, as I said, there were two Hollywood versions that literally were called War of the Worlds, but I really hope that you got that as I was going through this, it's like, this sounds an awful lot like Independence Day. And that was a huge hit, and that was following, in essence, the same story as War of the Worlds. And whereas they were wiped out by a computer virus, well, that's sort of the same thing as a microorganism. And that's the last thing I'm going to leave you with. Wells had clearly done his research because the idea of germ theory that begun early in the 1600s, yes, there'd been some clever scientists who'd worked it out, but it wasn't really caught on until the 1850s. The ideas of miasma and a ill wind, sickly winds and things like that, all of this is garbage. It turned out to be microorganisms. But the thing is, bacteria were discovered first. Bacteria are so much larger than viruses. The first virus ever actually isolated and confirmed wasn't done so until 1892, and it's unlikely that Wells was aware of that medical work. So he picked bacteria. If he'd waited a few more years, he might have picked viruses, but the idea is the same. These microorganisms can get into huge, complex, incredibly powerful creatures like us and lay us completely low as well. And so, absolutely, if something came from a completely different biome, like Mars, then you realise that they would probably have no resistance to our illnesses and so on and so forth. So with that in mind, good news, we might actually be immune to alien invasion, but we should also be careful to our fellow man, because you never know who else is watching, and it's the right thing to do. As always, I'm going to say... Please click subscribe. Please tell somebody about us. Please give us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Please follow me on Twitter, X, threads, etc. I'm at Jem Deducher on both of those. I always say this is the next one out, you know, coming out today. So you, you get a little bit of forewarning and a reminder of when the episodes are coming out. Really hope you enjoyed this one as much as I had doing it. Because I've literally been to the immersive experience, but also doing the podcast as well. Thanks very much, and as always, another episode coming soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.